Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It's Steph. Just after 9 o'clock on the 8th of November 2006. I hope you're doing fabulously. Uh, good night's sleep after the constant sleep deprivation situation that is um, uh, business travel. Actually, I had a fun time in New York, though. I, uh, I had originally bought a ticket to uh, go and see a show. It was Monday night, so there really wasn't a whole lot on. And... I went to pick up a sort of half-price ticket to go and see Forbidden Broadway, which is a show I've heard good things about, which is a takeoff on Broadway shows. And then I was walking back from the conference with a colleague, and I was walking past Radio City Music Hall and saw that the Bare Naked Ladies were playing. And uh, I have uh, I really liked the album Gordon, uh, which was their first album, and I really haven't listened to too much of theirs since other than the radio play stuff. But I decided to go and see them. And so um, none of my other colleagues, uh, fuddy-duddies that they were, were interested in going to see uh, one of these newfangled rock and roll shows. So uh, I went to Radio City Music Hall and uh, said, uh, do you have a good ticket for the loneliest guy in New York? The least popular guy in New York, because, of course, I was seeing the concert alone. And fortunately, uh, you know, solitude has its benefits, as we occasionally talk about here on the show. I got a ninth row center seat because they just had an odd number left over. And they weren't expecting the uh, the pitiful losers to show up and come and see the show. So uh, I saw a great show. Uh, boy, uh, I saw Mike Dowdy, though, not the best opening act in the world. Uh, flee if you can, but the Bare Naked Ladies were good. Uh, it was the second night of playing, and I think they played most of their early stuff the first night because there wasn't a whole lot of it the second night, but entertaining uh, and uh, fun show if you ever get a chance to see them. And, uh, man, as a, um, uh, a mediocre amateur singer, boy, you know, it is really quite a privilege to... Uh, to hear someone really rip loose, and the guitarist uh, who sings sometimes on their songs has a better voice live, I think, than he does uh, in the studio, so uh, it really was quite a treat, and they did like two encores, and it was a great deal of fun, so, and then I did my presentation yesterday. For those who are, you know, really fascinated with the little details of my little career, <laughs> I did the presentation yesterday, and uh, I think I did a good job. I actually did end up taping it, but I won't release it as a podcast, because what do you people want to know about optimizing profits? In the chemical manufacturing space, probably not a whole lot, but um, it was uh, it was enjoyable. So uh, uh, I wanted to. Um, uh, I'm going to do. Uh, I think maybe this afternoon or tomorrow morning. I wanted to do a day in the life of a uh, a statist semi-slave, <laughs> intermittent slavery. A day in the life of a citizen uh, about uh, all of the state interferences that occurred. It turned out I could blame my delay on the state, uh, but uh, I'll do that a little bit later because I kind of wanted to finish off the murmur cast that I did on Sunday night about the um, uh, this and, and apologies to Bill Bryce. I think I mentioned his name in there. Bill Bryce is an extraordinarily funny and uh, warm author. Uh, I've read uh, two of his books, A Short History of Nearly Everything and A Walk in the Woods. A Walk in the Woods has, for me at least, one of the best comedic lines um, that I've read in the last couple of years. He's talking about people in Arkansas and their resistance. I think it's Arkansas or Alabama, one of those states about their resistance to the teachings of evolution. And uh, he says that uh, the, the people uh, in Arkansas are not so much in, um, uh, in danger of being descended from monkeys as being overtaken by them, which I think is a, just a beautiful, uh, beautiful witty line. So if you get a chance to read his stuff, uh, Mark Stein, S-T-E-Y-N, I think he even dropped the E uh, because Myrmacasts are challenging. And uh, he was the guy who wrote uh, the article. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, I'm really glad that I did it in the airport because uh, I really, oh man, the the language that was scrolling across in my brain was uh, beyond 
unpleasant. So I'm really glad that I had the artificial restraint of a fairly quiet um, gate waiting area in an airport because, uh, boy, oh, boy, when I read about these intellectuals who, uh, you know, simply cannot find a problem that violence will not solve, uh, there's simply no uh, issue that a gun cannot smooth away. There is no disagreement that a knife to the throat uh, cannot solve uh, these, um, oh, oh, here comes the egger again. <laughs> these guys, uh, just uh, cheap uh, state-kissing toady asses. Uh, they just uh, make my stomach turn, and they make me unbelievably angry. Um, and I recognized that at one point I was a pro-Iraq war, but at least I had the decency to keep my opinions to myself. And uh, I um, have learned uh, from my experience, but this guy... Uh, you know, in favor of the Iraq war, in favor of intervention within Mexico, in favor of foreign intervention uh, with regards that he feels that more state is going to save us from the uh, aggression of the Muslims, perhaps by substituting a more violent and waspy kind of uh, set of rulers over us. But uh, I just sort of wanted to talk a little bit more about this question of, you know, where are we as a culture? And I think, and it really only came to me very solidly when I was reading this uh, article and in the podcast, but this dream or fantasy of what would now be called an extreme libertopian society, which was really the foundation of the West. Now, the West came out of the paternalistic state. The, wealth, the West came out of the welfare state. The West came out of the military state. So for us, like in, in our current situation, has been a complete boomerang and an accelerating boomerang back to the Middle Ages, uh, really, really since the First World War, which destroyed, uh, which destroyed Western civilization in the way that we traditionally think of it, you know, rationalistic and participatory and democratic and so on. The First World War smashed that completely in a tangible sense, whereas the um, things like the Civil War, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, to some degree, uh, and uh, most importantly, as I always say, the um, uh, state control of education, that smashed the ideas behind the West. And then those, uh, when, once the ideas are smashed, right, I mean, ideas are the greatest lever in the world. And once the ideas change, it may be a generation or two, but it is absolutely inexorable, right? The argument for morality uh, programs everybody's cost benefits uh, in, a, in a way that they're sometimes not even aware of. And the result is that what then rolls forward has all the inevitability of a uh, rock rolling down a hill. It may bounce a little. You may not be sure exactly where and when it's going to hit, but if you knew all the variables, you would. But uh, its direction and uh, its, uh, its end position is uh, absolutely inevitable. Uh, this is the closest I'll come to determinism, which is to say that the argument for morality without strenuous effort to the contrary is almost completely inescapable. Or at least I can't think of a time where it hasn't been. So when we look back upon history to associate the West with a minimal government, with the rule of law, with objective morality, with science, with democracy, with freedom, uh, all of these sorts of things, you really have to go back a, a hell of a long way, a hell of a long way. Uh, certainly a uh, um, hundred years in practicality and two hundred years or more in theory. And... It's my sort of general belief or, or my sort of proposition in these two podcasts that the West does not need to be rediscovered but reinvented. That if we have this dream of ourselves as a 
uh, liberty-based society that has something unique in the world, then we are really lost in a, uh, a dream. You know, we really all we're doing is planning the uh, economics of, uh, you know, Hobbit Town, you know, <laughs> the Shire or Mordor or, you know, we're working through the regulations of the Romulans. We're dealing with a complete fantasy world that didn't exist in the past. This idea that there was this burst of great liberty uh, at the end of the 18th century and that the West, you know, of course it was nonsense, right? I mean, you still had significant um, controls over property rights in the form of the state, but you still had significant religiosity, which is, of course, making a big comeback in the U.S., and uh, you had uh, uh, slavery still for a good chunk of that and, of course, the rights of women. I've talked about all this before. But looking at a small slice of society that had a greater degree of freedom and then imagining that there was somehow some sunburst uh, creation of liberty at the end of the 18th or early 19th century, or even through the Industrial Revolution, there was the creation of wealth for sure, and there was an expansion of property rights. But uh, fundamentally, I mean, the thing that I sort of like to say is that it's important not to mistake a shift in those who influence the government to be... Uh, a liberty as a whole, right? So if somebody different grabs the gun, it feels like a change, but the gun is still loaded and it's still pointed at, yes, of course, you and I, my friend. So uh, one of the things that occurred was that uh, as the, um, uh, you know, after the sort of 14th, 15th century when uh, Aristotle was uh, uh, rediscovered by the masses and after the Bible was translated, after the religious wars, and after the rediscovery of secular Roman law, which was required to run cities, what happened was the, the wealth began to shift from land to capital, right? The wealth began to shift from land to capital. Wealth in, the, in, the, um, in an agricultural society is the possession of land. Land is fixed and immovable, and therefore to gain wealth you need military power to conquer, and you need military power to keep other people out. So, of course, in the Middle Ages, the primary uh, people who controlled the state were the aristocracy. Right? That sort of makes sense, right? Land owning, land is the source of wealth, and so on. With, uh, the, um, uh, with the increase in agricultural productivity comes the excess food that is required to supply cities. As agricultural productivity increases, the value of land uh, goes down, right? Obviously, because it's producing more than it did before. As the, uh, and when you have this uh, excess food that allows for the creation of cities, you begin to get the accumulation of, of capital. And, uh, of course, the capital accumulation in the Middle Ages was non-existent. Uh, all excess capital was swallowed up by the local lord uh, in the sort of manorial serf relationship or was hoovered up by the church in the form of forced donations at the uh, threat of real or imagined flames. So no capital accumulation in the Middle Ages to speak of, but uh, the late Middle Ages and uh, early Renaissance, you began to see the accumulation of capital. And so what happens is that... The people who have capital, uh, it's easier to collect the, uh, the revenue in a city than it is to collect the revenue from the country. It's sort of fundamental. Uh, you know, in the same way that a farmer uh, puts a fence around his cattle, you know, he could let them roam free, but they'd be a hell of a lot tougher to milk. A farmer likes to put his fences around his cattle, and in the same way, the tax-collecting agencies really like to see people uh, in cities in the same way that they prefer electronic to cash transactions in terms of uh, uh, tax gathering. And so uh, really all that happens in the uh, Renaissance, Enlightenment, and then sort of the late 18th century is the uh, tax base from the sort of the, the bourgeoisie, the, the entrepreneurial class, the capitalists, the tax base from those guys begins to overtake the tax base from the landowners, right? So 
obviously the government is, is interested in maximizing its resources. And so the government then begins to, you know, support tacitly or implicitly or explicitly the intellectuals who were talking about the, um, the, the, the transition towards more economic freedom. As somebody pointed out on the boards recently that uh, governments may not crash because much like farmers, they manage their herd, right? So when, uh, so for instance, in Canada here, when the national debt got too high, then they were paying sort of 40 cents on the dollar or more in interest. So they stopped overprinting money and uh, uh, they sort of reduced inflation and there was a recession. And so they manage their flock, so to speak. They, uh, they make sure that the money keeps coming in. And I, I certainly agree with that, but still, uh, the demography, but they only do that at a, you know, a sort of immediate basis. I mean, next year, next couple of years, uh, people don't, you don't see business plans for GM going into the next century or GE, right? Uh, uh, people work on their own careers and the, d the demographics of the West uh, is going to just destroy the economy. It's going to tear the economies apart, right? I mean, when you uh, get an aging population going out of the, um, the range of uh, uh, producing taxes and into the range of consuming uh, services from the state, uh, that's going to, I mean, if, if it isn't already happening, and I believe that it is uh, really underway, a variety of economic indicators suggest uh, that, you know, the black, black marketeers are switching to the euro, and the Chinese are now uh, not that interested in buying additional U.S. Treasury bonds, which means that uh, the um, inflation rate is going to increase, which means that all the money people have borrowed on the imaginary increases in their house values is going to have to be repaid with real money, and uh, they won't be able to sell their houses and accumulate gains. I mean, you, you can't, you know, you, the money that you gain in your house is not real money, right? Because you can't sell it. You can sell it. If your house goes up by $50,000, that's not real money. It's not even remotely real money because you can't sell the house and gain that back, right? Because you need a place to live. And if your house has gone up by 50 grand, everyone else's house has too. So if you sell your house and then have to buy a new house, you've gained nothing. If you sell and go to rent, then maybe you're a little bit better off. But then at some, then you've lost the sort of capital accumulation. So, you know, again, all things are, are equal. Uh, if your stocks go up and you can sell them, that's one thing. But the value that increases in your house. So when interest rates begin to rise and a lot of people on variable rate mortgages, then anyway, there's going to be sort of a crunch, uh, to say the least. And uh, uh, that is uh, inevitable. But it is certainly true that when regulations pile up too high and taxes pile up too high, that people want to um, uh, that people want to go and pillage other uh, that the, the, the amount of taxes that are being paid goes down, then sure, uh, people will diminish, uh, the, the government will shift tax burdens around and so on, and uh, that's, that's natural, that's inevitable, but still, the general progress is towards greater government. So you can shift reads like somebody going into debt, they'll pay off this credit card and then they'll reduce a bit of spending over it, but eventually, right, when your income exceeds your expenses, uh, at some point, uh, it all goes to hell in a handbasket, and that's for sure what's going to happen, although I certainly agree that the states, uh, the governments will attempt to... Um, uh, will attempt to sort of maximize their tax gathering and, and pillaging of the population capacity. But, you know, when the farmer realizes that his cows uh, are not producing any more milk, then he's not a charity. He'll just kill them. And again, I'm, that's a, not a metaphor I'm talking about that we're all going to get executed. But, um, uh, you know, the farmer will try and maximize. But once he can't get anything more, then he won't bother it. Uh, you know, he just sends them to the slaughterhouse. So, and then, of course, the people in the government know an enormous amount more about economic indicators than the silly, foolish, ridiculous numbers that they give us. So uh, they're going to be, and of course, they have access to the money printing capacity and the inside scoop. And so they're simply going to, um, uh, they're simply going to uh, just grab everything they can. 
and then it'll happen very suddenly. But the Industrial Revolution, I think, is sort of important to understand that a philosophy had its place, and I certainly don't want to deprecate the Enlightenment Renaissance and Enlightenment philosophers. But the real question is, why does the state listen? Why does the state listen? As long as you have a state, philosophers and, and thinkers are always going to be dependent upon the self-interest of those with the guns, right? So I think it's sort of important to understand that the government simply started to listen to the bourgeoisie more than they listened to the aristocracy because the bourgeoisie was contributing more money. Whoever pays the piper uh, calls the tune and you, you dance with the mong that brung you. So uh, there was a certain amount of philosophy that occurred, but it was still all under the aegis of state self-interest, which is why it didn't work in terms of achieving freedom. As long as you have the state, the philosophy that calls for a shift in state resources or a shift in state taxation and control, so away from property rights in land, which was the aristocracy, and I use the term property rights in the sort of Genghis Khan sense of, uh, see, of uh, you know, seize and hold, away from property rights in land that were based on hereditary violence and more towards property rights in, uh, in land that was based on sort of occupation and control because that gave extra food, which was good. And then it was more towards property rights in capital and once governments realized and churches to some degree as well realized that once you were allowed to lend at interest, you could tax the accumulated capital. Right? There was a whole new source of revenue for governments and uh, a whole new source of revenue for the church. Then, you know, lickety split, the, uh, the moral absolute suddenly changed completely and everybody's all real keen and hot and bothered to uh, start protecting property rights and capital. And that's an important thing to understand. It's, it's a shifting of crop. It's not the ending of, of farming. It's just a shifting of crops that occurs. And that is something that is just fundamental to understand, that as long as you have a state around, the only changes that are going to occur uh, in a legal sense are the ones that benefit the state, uh, those in, in power, uh, the ones that benefit them materially or in terms of feeding their power lust, in the relatively short run. Right? That's sort of a very fundamental thing to understand. That's, that's how you track the, the sort of movements and growth in society, is you see what benefits uh, the people in power, and, and there's lots, I mean, there is multiplicity in arguments because there's lots of different people who want control of state power. So there is multiplicity in the arguments that are put forward. Some people say domestic programs, uh, some people say uh, foreign aggression, uh, and so on. But uh, there is still, it's just a matter of, you know, who it is who gets to grab the resources for their own benefit and what story are they going to put forward to the people who, quote, vote for them. But, and now, of course, we've had a bit of a relief from increases in taxation in the West, but that's mostly largely because the combination of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund have spent the last 20 years raping and pillaging the, um, the third world by, uh, you know, sort of quote, forcing or bribing the um, sort of, quote, privatization of uh, the, um, the resources that have been developed in the third world, uh, the public resources, the government-owned resources, the water and, and electricity and so on. We're getting those sold off to private companies who then raise the prices because they have been granted an effective monopoly. and So there's been an enormous amount of pillaging of third world resources uh, over the last uh, uh, 15, 20 years, which has taken the heat off Western taxpayers just a little bit. And the reason that they've had to turn over to um, uh, had to turn overseas is because the policies that they put in place have caused a, uh, a sort of... A, a slowdown and then a slow decline in real wages over the past uh, 15, 10, 10, 15 years, so they had to sort of go elsewhere. 
because the uh, you know the, uh, the the state could not grow and it constantly needs to grow uh, because there's always new people who want at uh, they're selling favors right they're selling our hide blood life and future and children so they went overseas and now that's drying up so then they went to war and then you know there's all this kind of stuff that that's going on pretty continually and if, you know it is getting more and more panicked and so on so it will uh, it will end but when we look back at the sort of 18th century that sort of late middle ages renaissance enlightenment uh, you know, industrial revolution phase, we think that there was a uh, a great growth in uh, in freedom and so on, and and there was. I mean, don't get me wrong; I'm not sort of dissing it in any sort of general sense. But as long as you still have the state, it's merely just a shift of uh, you know. There's maybe the guns are pointed at a fewer people, uh, but um, uh, the, the logic is still there about the forcible reallocation of resources and the uh, funding of slavery by the slaves, right? And through taxation, you pay for the police who collect your taxes. So I think it's very important that we not look back at the past, you know, at the Constitution, right? At the, uh, uh, at the, um, at the Republic, the dream of, the, of, of America, because it always was just a fantasy. It always was just a fantasy. And it always was inevitable that we were going to end up back here because that's the logic of state that's the logic of violence, right? Violence increases until it uh, collapses. And it's like any addiction. So I would sort of make the strong suggestion that the real weakness within the West is, like the most fundamental weakness is looking at the past. Like either people sort of look to some sort of socialist model or some sort of additional government control model or some sort of, you know, either domestic programs in the socialistic sense or foreign, excuse me, foreign conquering in the uh, fascistic or communist sense, the imperial sense, or they look, you know, they sort of look at that sort of expansion of state power and say that's where we need to go, or they look back in history at a fantasy libertopia that never existed and say that's where we need to go, right? So either it's irrational, uh, false, and um, and fantastical, right, to go back to the constitution or the smaller government in the sort of Harry Brown model, uh, or it's fascistic or communistic and imperialistic, which means that we, we have to get more aggressive, right? That, that strength is somehow equated with aggression, right? That the, the, the reason that the Muslims are so aggressive uh, is because we're not aggressive back, right? So this is the old, the bully punches you, you punch the bully back harder. But, of course, the uh, state relationship with the Muslims, uh, our government's relationship with the Muslims is a little bit more complex than little old weak-kneed us or picked on in the playground, I mean, they've armed the Muslims, they've invited the Muslims over, they've funded the Muslims, the welfare state pays for a lot of the Muslims and other people. We're just talking about the Muslims so far. And so uh, it's a little bit more complicated and reciprocal, not to mention all of the preferential policies that are put in place to attempt to maintain the flow of oil and, and the balance of trade and so on. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, it's a little bit more complicated, our state's relationship with the Muslims, than, you know, little old us just sitting away in our towers and the planes come out of nowhere. So, if we, but, but the, the, the great danger is sort of to look back into the past and say we need to go back to something that, that worked in the past. Right? That, that is a grave danger. And that, again, does not trounce the fundamental premise of state power. Right? That, that whole approach of saying back to the future is the way to go. The only way that the West is going to invigorate itself is to look forward without the prejudices or fantasies or imaginings of the past. And in my 
humble opinion, to take what works, what is proven, what is proven efficacious and, and practical and moral, to take what works and apply it consistently. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. You know, it's like if every time I eat iron shavings I get very sick, maybe I should cut out at least some of the iron shavings. That's not that hard, right? Uh, the West is, um, uh, needs to move forward to a truly free society, not look backwards at a society that was never free and imagine that recreating it will somehow not end us back in the same situation. And it is to the future and to a new set of ideas, or rather an expansion of existing ideas that work, uh, rational, rationality, empiricism, proof, the scientific method, and so on, and expanding those, and then the market, free market, of course, expanding those to, uh, to their just universals, right? I mean, and so I would say that a really fundamental weakness of uh, the West, the reason that we're so enervated, is that we either take on some bizarre fascistic model of foreign conquering as our, quote, strength, which, of course, it isn't. That's merely bullying and posturing and carves out the health and heart of a nation and conscience and soul and empathy of a nation. Or, you know, we talk about uh, needing to pay off people who might even remotely be discontented in the form of welfare programs and, and, and foreign aid and so on, uh, both of which are fundamentally about reallocating resources towards those in power. I don't uh, fundamentally, uh, call me crazy, I don't fundamentally see that as any kind of strength, that uh, to pay off the people in power and to give them the additional money to fund additional weaponry, that that is uh, any, any way to solve uh, the problems that we have in the West. We cannot look to the past. We cannot look to the Enlightenment. We cannot look to the Renaissance. We cannot look to historical philosophy because historical philosophy got us exactly where we are today. We need to look to the future. We need to look to the future. We need to reinvent ourselves as a culture, which means that we need to stop being a culture. <laughs> we need to invent ourselves as thinking beings and not lean on history for our solutions. We have to challenge all assumptions. We have to re-examine historical evidence in the light that there is a direct line from 1776 to now. There is a direct line, and it really wasn't very long. <laughs> right? It really wasn't very long before Wilson had the power to uh, enter into a European war and begin uh, the final end of the republic to nationalize the money, nationalize the brains of the children, all that kind of stuff. It really wasn't very long, like 100 years, right? Those ideas led forward. Going back to those ideas, A, is impossible, and B, even if you could, you'd just end, right, end up right back where we are. So we need to stop ferreting around in this imaginary past for our future salvation. And we need to throw away all of our history, save the lessons of that history. We need to discard our past and extract the principles. In the same way that if you have a scientific experiment that does not work, Right? You don't go back and say, well, if I redo it, I'll get a different result. No, you learn the principles of what didn't work and adjust your theory. So the smallest conceivable state in the history of the planet, with the greatest philosophy behind it, did not get rid of slavery, did not create rights for women, did not universalize property rights in any stretch of the imagination, and uh, grew back to a festering fascistic dictatorship in about 50 to 70 years. That's not uh, something that we should go back and attempt to recreate or reproduce or re-energize. We need to change our assumptions, challenge our assumptions, and shed our history.
to shed our history, shed, uh, shred, shed the dream that we can find our way to the future by going back and imagining the past. That is not going to happen. That is not going to work. If we understand, as every alcoholic and drug addict and sex addict needs to understand, that we cannot, as a species, rationally or morally or historically or logically handle the brute power of enslaving people and forcing them to pay for their slavery, if we recognize that we cannot handle that. Human beings have power addictions. Human beings have a desire based on base amoral biological maximization of resources to control others at the point of a gun and have them pay for that gun as well. That we simply cannot have a society where this power exists any more than a drunk can have a couple of drinks. Any more than a heroin addict can just take a couple of hits or a sex addict can go to just a few orgies. Right? Once we get, as every addict needs to get, that we cannot handle that stimuli, that we cannot handle that power, that no human being can handle that power, that no society can survive that power. Once we get that final illusion out of our heads, that power, violence, centralized, hegemonic, coercive, hierarchical control leads to anything other than the destruction of a society at the expense and enrichment of the few, once we get that fundamental proposition, then we really do have a chance to overcome our addictions. But the drunk uh, fools himself into a self-destructive pattern, even after he's hit bottom, by saying, hey, I can handle a couple of drinks. Maybe I'll just be a social drinker. Maybe I'll, you know, I can, I can do it now. I haven't done it for a while, so I can handle it again. Boom. Right back they go. Right? The drunk going back to drinking is one drink. And the cycle and process begins all over again, and it's almost inescapable and unstoppable until such time as the drunk hits bottom again. And that's really all that happens in society. If you look at history, it's a massive power binge that initially has a kind of giddy, up, up hysterical uh, funziness to it. I don't use overly technical terms here. And then it sort of looks less fun and less fun and less fun, and then there's a hysterical binging in an attempt to recreate the former funziness. Then there's a crash, and then there's a, uh, a, horrible, it's a horrible hangover, the destruction of all that is good and worthy, and then um, you know the drunk sort of picks himself back up and uh, uh, doesn't drink for a little while, and then says, uh, all right, well, I can handle it. You know, I haven't drunk for a couple of months, so I can now handle my drinking again, and the whole, the whole cycle sort of begins over and over again. And if we want to escape that cycle, then we need to get that we just can't drink. We need to kind of give away or give up that idea that drinking or drug use or promiscuity is, uh, is good for us and, and that we can handle it. And once we get that idea, then we just stop drinking. We just stop drinking. But until we get that idea, we're going to be trapped in this cycle of addiction over and over and over again. This is going to happen in society. So for us, you know, we're like the drunk who's, you know, on a bender and is about to crash, looking back and saying, you know, when I was 16, I could, I could handle my liquor, right? I had a couple of drinks a week and I was good, without recognizing that because we're fundamentally addicted to alcohol, just as human beings are fundamentally addicted to power, that those first few drinks led inevitably to the current state of dissolution, despair and self-destruction. That it's a continual, unbreakable, unswervable line from the beginning of our addictions to the crash at the end. 
when you take the first few drinks, you choose, you know, wrapping your SUV around a pole with your kids getting thrown out the windows because you were drunk. The first few drinks implicitly include that because we're addicted, because we're alcoholics. A minarchist state implicitly chooses the warfare welfare state, the military-industrial complex, the destruction of the middle-class savings and the extreme risk of dictatorship that arises from that. There is no way to not get that because human beings are addicted to power. Once we get that, we can stop dreaming about the past and start actually building a future that's going to be different from the past. But the first thing we need to do is to actually and genuinely learn those lessons from the past and learn them real. Learn them for real this time, rather than imagining that a reduction in our drinking is going to stop us from being alcoholic. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to your donations. Good to be back.